Good afternoon, church. I'm glad I said good afternoon because I've been practicing that all week because normally it's good morning. So I'm glad I got that one right. It is really good to see you all uh, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this Sabbath day. So as Pastor Pedro said, please be praying for Pastor Gareth and for Kerry as they are traveling today. Uh, Pastor Gareth will be arriving this evening, I believe, and I think Kerry has just arrived in Johannesburg as well. So we are continuing our sermon series of one another. As Pastor Gareth mentioned a few uh, weeks ago, that the words one another occur several times in the New Testament. For as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to care for one another. We are to honor one another. We are to do good to one another. And of course, we are to forgive one another as well. And according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the command that uh, binds this all together is that we are to love one another. So these past few weeks from the scriptures, we've been learning about the one another. And if you recall, Pastor Tinnus took us through the Gospel of Matthew, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus taught his disciples the correct way of judging. Because you can remember the apostle wasn't telling us not to judge, but to judge in the correct manner. For we are to first take the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to see the speck in our brother's eye, which is Matthew 7, verses 5. And last week, Pastor Pedro took us through the book of Ephesians, where we were encouraged to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And what we learned was that these words were really dependent on the imperative of the previous verse, which was to be filled with the Spirit. So while the sealing of the Spirit is essentially a one-for-all initiation for Christians, but what we're talking about here is the ongoing filling, which is progressive, which is to be sought for an ongoing basis. For one who is filled with the Spirit is filled with Christ, is filled with God, is filled with God's Word. So this week, what we will be learning about is encouragement. Now, of course, what the world teaches about encouragement is completely different from that of the Bible. For one just has to look at the multi-million dollar industry of the self-help books and the guides that are available online or on the bookstores. So whatever situation you find yourself in, probably you would find a book that would claim to help solve your problems. So perhaps you are new parents and you are expecting your first child and you are looking for some answers to some of the questions. Or maybe you are a keen golfer and you're trying to correct your fade. So I'm sure David and uh, Greg and maybe Trad has got plenty of books lying on their shelves. Or you want to make the perfect meal for your dinner party and you scour the many recipes from Jamie Oliver to Gordon Ramsay. Or maybe you want to make money as quickly as possible and you're looking for the eight easy steps on how to be successful. And I know if you asked my wife, 
Irma there. She wishes she could find a book of how not to irritate your wife in five easy steps. A book that every husband should really read. So if you are looking for encouragement, you just need to look really to God's word, right? You have, ha, can find plenty of words and encouraging stories that will lift you up, that will build you up. So the title of my message today is simply Encouragement. So we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So if you all wouldn't mind standing out of reverence for God's word, we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So this is the day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for their day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now notice, this is our verse for the day. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this day. We want to give you all the glory and honor that you deserve. But Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us and guide us through the passage, Lord. We ask that our lives will be transformed by this message today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So the first point of my message today, we need to look at the context and the reason for the exhortation, which we see in verses 1 to 10. So we'll take a bird's eye view of the book first, and then as we come into land, we will really then get into the meat of the passage. So we know that the Apostle Paul was the author of this letter, and that he may have had some help from Timothy and Silas. Now, for the backdrop of this, we find this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul was on his second missionary journey. He was together with his traveling companions, Timothy and Silas, and they came upon the Greek city of Thessalonica by the road of Philippi, where they were shamefully treated. For Paul mentions this in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 2, verses 2. But in Acts chapter 17, he records, For Paul preached and debated with them in the synagogues for three consecutive Sabbaths. Now some of them were persuaded in the synagogues to join Paul and Silas. However, some of the Jews were very jealous of the message, so they took some wicked men and they formed a mob. And as a result, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now Jason and the others were forced to post a security bond and they were to guarantee that the church was not to cause any more trouble. But we know that Paul, Timothy, and Silas were whisked away by night, and they found themselves to the west in Berea. And here the gospel was more received by the Jewish community. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in order to reconnect with the church. After he received reports from Timothy, that the church was actually doing really well. They were flourishing despite much persecution that they were facing. So the letter here expresses the apostle's joy, his relief that they were continuing firm in the faith despite the premature departure of Paul and his co-workers. It is almost certain that he wrote this letter while he was in Corinth, where Silas and Timothy were reunited with him following his second missionary journey. It was most likely it was written in AD 50 or 51, making it one of his earliest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. So what we can see from the book of Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians, is that it is divided into two major parts, right? The first, where we see that Paul celebrates the faithfulness of the Thessalonians to Jesus. But in the second section, he challenges them to continue to grow as followers of Jesus. And thus, our passage today, we can see, is taken is, or located in the second section of the letter. For he opens the second part in chapter 4 by challenging the Thessalonians to a life that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus. Firstly, we know that being a follower of Christ requires a serious commitment to holiness and to sexual purity. And this is, of course, in direct contrast to the culture that is around them at the time. For they are to follow Jesus' teachings about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex in a pure and committed, loving relationship as in a marriage. And of course, following Jesus honors a commitment to loving and to serving people as well. That Christians should also be known as hardworking people and that they were not only to provide for themselves, but to generously share all the resources that they were given. So after this, we see that Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians may have had, particularly raising concern about the hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in that church had recently died, and most likely many of them were martyrs, and some of them were wondering what their fate was when Jesus returned. But Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and their loss, that not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. For when Jesus returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead, 
and they will be called unto himself. He uses the image whereby King Jesus will be, will be greeted by a delegation of people up in the air who will then escort him down to the earth or down to the world where he will then establish his kingdom of justice and peace. So Paul wants to know, uh, to show the Thessalonians how this hope should be motivated with faithfulness to Jesus Christ our Lord. So the first three verses, verses 1 to 3 in our passage, Paul now encourages the Thessalonians to prepare for the day of the Lord. And what does he say about the day of the Lord? He says, the day will come unexpectedly on the ungodly. For Paul is also indicating that as believers, it is a day that we do not need to worry about. It is a day that we do not need to be concerned about, right? For in the previous section, we see in chapter 4, 13 to 18, he already explained that the church will look with joyous anticipation to the promised future of the return of Jesus Christ. For we know that at his first advent, Jesus secured our redemption, right? But at the second advent, we will experience the consummation of his kingdom. Now, it is interesting to note that when the scriptures talk about the day of the Lord, it is not referring to a single day. The day of the Lord is not a single day. But rather, it is a protracted time or a protected, protracted period of time in the future. And it will involve many dramatic events that include the rapture of the church, a time of tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, and of course, the time of judgment as well. But notice that Paul is talking to believers, right? Because he says, now concerning the times and the season, brothers. And in the New American Standard Bible, it says brothers and sisters. So he's writing to believers. But also, notice that he's explaining the events that will happen to the ungodly people right? For he uses pronouns like they and them to indicate the non-believers. He refers to believers as you, uh, yourselves, and of course includes himself because he says us and we. So essentially he is talking to the church, but he is talking about unbelievers. So we know that the day of the Lord is very well known in the Old Testament because the Old Testament prophets refer to it as well. Because we just have to look at Joel or Amos. For in Amos chapter 5, verses 18, Amos writes, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And Malachi chapter 4, verses 5, writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And they prophesied about God's judgment. And the prominent Old Testament association of the day the Lord is judgment. And we know that this is continued in the New Testament, where judgment, where final rewards, and where punishments are explained. Because the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 13, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So thus Christ has already passed judgment for the believers on the day of the Lord. However, for the unbelievers, they will feel the wrath of God on the day of the Lord. For them, the day will come like a thief in the night, just as Jesus explained in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and in Luke chapter 21. For them, it will come unexpectedly. It will come at any time. But now, for the unbelievers, we know that it will be a frightening time for them, because Paul explains that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And then he continues to show the difference between the believers and the non-believers. So in this section, we can see the contrast and the divide between the two, between the believers and the non-believers. For he uses metaphors to describe, right? He uses light, not darkness. He uses day, not night. He uses awake, not asleep. And he uses sober, not drunk. For believers, we are called to be different in the world around us, right? For Paul writes, let us not be like others. And again, notice the pronouns that he uses. For if we look in verses 4 to 8, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those, talking about unbelievers who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we, the believers, belong to the day, let us be sober. So let's look at those metaphors briefly. Light, not darkness. So we know that the world around us is living in darkness. And as believers, we shouldn't be running away from the darkness, but instead we need to shine our light in the darkness. We need to shine it. For Paul refers to believers as children of light. For when the scriptures refer to darkness, it refers to sin. It refers to ignorance, right? But now remember, we too were once in darkness, but only when Jesus shone his light in our lives were we then considered as children of life. So when Christians are spoken of as children of light, it means that light is our distinguishing characteristics. So look at the second metaphor, day, not night. For you are all children of light, children of the day. And we are not of the night or of the darkness. As well as the previous point about the light and the darkness, this refers again to the day of the Lord. For we are children of the day of the Lord, which means we will anticipate and we will participate in the great day when Christ returns. So in other words, the day of the Lord will not surprise us like a thief in the night. For as believers, we will be prepared for that day. Then he uses the third metaphor, awake, not asleep. For Paul writes, 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake, verse 6 and verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So remember, Jesus used the same language in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42, because our Lord and Savior said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day of the Lord is coming. So in other words, don't go to sleep spiritually. Be prepared for the Lord's coming. Be awake. Be watchful. And then the final metaphor that he uses is sober, not drunk. So let us be sober, which literally means not intoxicated with wine. Like all the other metaphors, it speaks of both the physical and the spiritual as well. And another phrase that is used in the scripture as opposed to sober is being self-controlled or to be clear-headed. For we know that drunkenness comes from indulgence of the senses to try and escape reality, right? And this arises from a lack of self-control. So as Christians, we are called to live self-controlled lives in every aspect of our daily living. We are to clothe ourselves in faith, in hope, and in love. Because Paul explains, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And notice that, that comes from Ephesians as well, the armor of God. Now we are landing, right? We are From the bird's eye view, we're coming down to land and we are looking at my second point, which is the exhortation to encourage and to build. So we see that he starts with the exhortation with therefore. So of course, as usual, we need to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? So we need to look back at the reasons for the exhortation. For in verses 8 to 10, he writes again, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober or self-controlled, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So the wrath in this context refers to the condemnation and the punishment that unbelievers, so those who have not repented of their sin or who have asked for forgiveness of their sins and who have not asked Jesus Christ to take on the punishment for their sins, they will receive on the day of wrath. They will receive punishment. Because Paul again writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves, on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So thus we know that God has appointed his people to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and not wrath. So surely if we understand this point, we ought to encourage one another. We ought to build one another up. We are not to divide or tear each other apart or divide each other like the rest of the world. But also notice that Paul says to the Thessalonians, just as you are doing. So in other words, 
They are already practicing this exhortation, right? Paul encourages them to continue to do this, not to stop, not to give up. He wants them to continue to encourage each other, to build up. And this is an ongoing process. It's not a once and for all. But why do you think Paul is now telling the Thessalonians about encouragement here? Well, he wants the Thessalonians to encourage one another because we know that life is hard. It isn't easy, right? We know that for human beings, we struggle and we endure the loss of many things. We may lose our faith. We may lose our health. We may lose our jobs. We may lose our careers, our our finances, our reputations, or we may even lose our loved ones. But we have this capacity to endure. And the pages of the Bible and the history books are filled with those who suffered much pain, who suffered much rejection, who suffered isolation, much persecution, and of course much abuse as well. But we know that the Thessalonians and the Christians have been appointed by God to undergo and withstand trials and tribulations of every kind. And we know that it is not necessarily as a result of maybe our sin, but sometimes God may discipline us as part of his loving plan to correct us as well. But it is also clear from the scriptures that as Christians, we will be persecuted for our faith. And Jesus did not shy away from telling his followers about all the troubles that they would face in the world. In fact, he told them that the world would hate them, right? For in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, he says, or Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And also the apostle Peter understood as well, because he wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, he says, Beloved, so beloved, referring to the believers, beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So humans can survive the loss of almost anything, but not without hope. (coughs) Excuse me. For Dr. Kenneth Bauer, the president of the Reflection Ministries in his article, talks about encouragement, and he writes, Hope is how we live. Hope is what gets us from one day to the next. A person goes to school and hopes that one day he will graduate. That person graduates and hopes that one day he will enter into a great career. If he is single, he hopes that perhaps one day he will meet the right person and get married. He gets married and hopes that one day he and his wife will have children. Then they have children and hope that they will live long enough to get the kids out of the house. However, we know that our hope can be misplaced. Sometimes our hopes and our dreams are in the wrong things in the wrong places, or even the wrong people. 
Perhaps our hope might be in our jobs, in our bank accounts, in our spouses, or even our children. But the scriptures are clear that our hope needs to be in the risen Christ. For when life gets tough and gets you down, when you feel that you are in a dark place or an endless maze of despair, then you need to keep the hope alive. Jesus reminds us in John 16 verses 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In our passage, Paul exhorts us to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up. Now maybe it might be a quick loving correction, or maybe it may just be a shoulder to cry on. Whatever the reason is, we need to be intentional about it. For we serve a God who encourages people. We serve a God of encouragement. Now, we know that there are many attributes to God, and to try and even contemplate them all is impossible. But a major theme throughout the Old Testament prophets is that God is a God of encouragement. He lovingly sought to inspire the Israelites, his people, to put their confidence and their hope in him. So in other words, God encourages people because he loves his people. So I hope you listened to the scripture reading from uh, Brother Vincent this morning. It seemed like quite a difficult passage to grasp, but let me, let me point you to the truths of it today. For the prophet Zechariah was a classic example of a prophet whom God used and spoke tremendous amount of encouragement. So I just want to read a few verses of the passage. So if we look at Zechariah 2, 6 to 13, he says, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. And then he goes on, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. For many nations will be joined with the Lord in that, on that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. What amazing prophetic words were spoken. Because we know that if we look at the context of it, the Israelites experienced much trauma from the 70-year Babylonian captivity. For the people who had survived returned to Jerusalem to resettle in the land and, of course, to rebuild the temple. However, many of them must have thought or wondered if God still had a purpose for them. For they were a small remnant, and the land to which they returned was desolate. For Jerusalem was in a complete mess. The temple had been destroyed. The palaces 
the walls were gone. Everything was gone. And it may have seemed that God had abandoned his people for some other plan. But it is in this context that the prophet Zechariah spoke, and he spoke a message of comfort and of hope. For Zechariah encouraged the people to complete the building project given to them by giving them a vision that the Messiah, who would one day come to the temple, and that he will bring salvation to all people. So through the prophet Zechariah, we see that God reassured his people that he brought them back to the land for a purpose and that his covenant promises for them would be fulfilled in the Messiah's glorious reign over the nations of the earth. So that was verses 11 and 12. So we know that God had not abandoned his people or his promises in spite of the history of their unfaithfulness the Lord says he will remain faithful to his promises he has made. And we know that the scriptures are full of examples of encouragement. Remember Joseph in Genesis. He forgave his brothers despite what they did to him. Or even look at the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. And in 1 Kings chapter 19 where we see Elijah who was a prophet of God who had experienced great victory over the prophets of Baal, uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, but shortly afterwards we know what happened. He received death threats from the Queen Jezebel, and he fled into the wilderness. And he was exhausted, and he felt completely alone. But we know that in his despair, God provided him a word of encouragement for him, and reminded him that he was not alone. Or look at David and Jonathan right? This is also a wonderful example of encouragement. They had a deep, profound, covenantal relationship of mutual and respect between the two of them. It provided them with much steadiness, with much comfort, especially in troubling times. For we know, according to the scriptures, they walked together, they prayed together, and they encouraged each other until Jonathan's death. For David wrote of his friend Jonathan, he said, Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman, which we see in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 26. Or consider the life of Barnabas. Now, his name literally means sons of encouragement. Now, we know that he was a wealthy and a generous man and somehow earned this wonderful nickname. So he must have done something really to impress the apostles because they said to him in Acts chapter 4, verses 36, Joseph isn't an accurate name for you. Your name should be Barnabas, because you are such a son of encouragement. And Luke tells us, when Saul, or the Apostle Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that Saul was an actual disciple. But Barnabas took him in, he brought them to the other apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey to Damascus had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him and how Paul had ministered there in Damascus. So due to their suspicion, it seemed as if Saul's ministry would die before it had even gotten started. And that might have happened had not Barnabas stood by Saul's side, leading him to the apostles 
and testifying about his conversion and about his ministry. Barnabas encouraged the apostles to bless Saul's ministry and they responded favorably. For Barnabas, Barnabas provided timely support for Saul needed and, what, and that's exactly what Saul needed to launch his ministry. And of course, if it wasn't for Barnabas, right, we would never have had these wonderful letters from the Apostle Paul. For through his life and his public ministry, we see how Paul encouraged the churches that he founded. So all of these are wonderful, amazing examples of how to encourage one another. For when we testify what a difference Jesus has made in our lives, we are called to follow him, for we are called to serve him, to serve each other. And the only way we can serve each other is through relationships. We are to come alongside each other. We are to support each other. For we are all in a close covenant relationship with one another. And the only way to do this is to spend time together, right? To spend time together with one another on a Sunday worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together, spending time with, another, with one another during Bible studies, spending time with one another praying together, or maybe it's even getting together for a cup of coffee or a meal together or sharing a meal. But by sharing life together, by standing side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can encourage one another, we can lift each other up. And this is really the only way to live as a Christian to provide one another with hope and support, especially during the dark days. Because we know the writing in Hebrews reminds us, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. So in conclusion, I just want to tell you about a wonderful story that I found in Dr. Boer's uh, article about C.S. Lewis. So we all know C.S. Lewis very, very well. In the latter years of his life, C.S. Lewis had an astonishing correspondence with an anonymous woman from America. For in his letters, Lewis urged the woman to deal with life in an honest way, acknowledging grief fear and anger openly. He also warned her about the danger of allowing anger and fear to drive her away from God. His letters refer often to suffering, to the difficulties of dealing with abrasive people. He also writes regularly about prayer and its place in spiritual life. And in all the letters, there are three themes that really stand out. Firstly, is honestly dealing with our emotional state. Secondly, is responding graciously to trials and trying people. And finally, being diligent in your prayer life. So the letters are really fascinating to read. But what is most amazing is that Lewis bothered to write them at all. He was a famous man. He confessed to being overwhelmed by his workload and by the time this came around in his life, he could hardly even write because of the rheumatic pain in his arm. But yet, Clyde Kilby notes the reason Lewis continued the correspondence was because 
Lewis believed that taking time out to, or to advise or encourage another Christian was both humbling of one's talents before the Lord and also as much the work of the Holy Spirit was as producing a book. So being a source of encouragement to a fellow Christian was as meaningful as anything he ever did. He is an example to us all about the enormous value of spiritual encouragement, of being present with each other, of giving generously to each other, even if they have very little to give in return for us. So we, are, we know that we are not called to live life alone. God is generous towards us as he gives us the grace of knowing his encouragement and his acceptance. He then provides us with the encouragement and the acceptance of others. Finally, we know that he invites us to participate with him in giving of these same gifts, whether we follow or whether we lead. So may the Lord bless us today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word, Lord, and for the guidance to encourage one another. Lord, we pray that we will take this exhortation seriously, Father. May we never forsake our duties with due diligence, Father. We pray that we may use our gifts and the talents to the glory of your wonderful name, Lord. We pray that we may build each other up. We pray that we may encourage each other, especially as the day of the Lord will be near. And we ask this through your son's precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.